the final part of the cast of Christmas today. Before the service started, and those of you who are going to be watching this on Facebook, um, I showed a clip from uh, it's a series called The Chosen. And uh, this is a rather unique uh, series about the life of Jesus, and it's all crowdfunded, quite unique. Uh, hard to get a hold of here in Canada, but do a little bit of research online and you can find it. I think different episodes are on YouTube that you can find. The pilot is free. It's called The Chosen, I think, The Christmas Pilot. And uh, I would challenge you to watch that. That is one of the better depictions of the Christmas story that I have ever seen. And that is, I've seen almost all of them. Uh, it's kind of a hobby of mine to watch these television shows and Christmas movies and see how they do Christmas. And that one is really unique. Uh, and, and I thought it was interesting to show you if you, if you're on my, uh, if you ever given me your cell phone number, you're on a list and you get text messages from me on a regular basis. And I sent you a link to that video yesterday. Uh, if you haven't watched it, uh, I would encourage you to watch it. It kind of gets you into the understanding of uh, how these people felt uh, when Jesus was born and the night that he was born, okay? So the cast of Christmas, and we've talked about the prophets and uh, peace. Uh, sorry, the prophets was preparation and the message of the angels. We talked about that whole thing of peace last week, and we're going to do two today. We're going to com combine it into one message, the shepherds. And the Magi, hard to pronounce. I'll call them the Magi, all right? You'll see why in, uh, in a few moments, okay? So the shepherds and the Magi. And you have, two, you have two themes that are coming through when you look at these two groups of people in the cast of Christmas. And that is the themes of joy and worship. And by the way, if you want to get reacquainted with the Christmas story, as is evidenced by your quizzes, I've looked at all the quizzes of all the people who handed them in, so it became very clear to me that you all need to be reacquainted with the Christmas story. Uh, if you want to read it, it's real easy. Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 2. You'll have to bear the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1, okay? But you zip through there if you're bored by that. But Matthew 1, Matthew 2, Luke 1, Luke 2. I think you've got a genealogy in there too. So you read those two chapters and that will reacquaint you with the Christmas story. And as you read it, you'll see it kind of fits together like a bit of a jigsaw puzzle. Uh, but it's a lot different when you read those, those stories than some of these things, these understandings of Christmas that we typically have, all right? So the shepherds only appear in Luke chapter 2, only, and the magi only appear in Matthew chapter 2. Very simple, two themes, joy and worship, all right? So starting with the shepherds, who were they? And this is a very good question because there's different ideas as to who these shepherds were. Uh, if you look at the, the, the story in... Uh, in Luke chapter 2, I just turn in my old-fashioned paper Bible here. So here you have verse 8. Uh, just after Jesus is born, uh, you see the census take place. In verse 6, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger. That's a feeding trough for animals because there was no room for them in the inn, the inn is not a Motel 6. The inn may have been, we don't know for sure, but it may have been referring actually to the 
kind of the upper room or the second floor of a traditional house back there back then. And the people would sleep upstairs and sometimes they would put animals downstairs. So possible thing, as you saw in that video, is that there was no room in the mezzanine or the inn. And so they, when he started crying, they put him in the manger downstairs with whoever was there. We don't know. Was there animals? We don't know. The movie has animals in there because they're cute, but we don't know. So, uh, but who were these shepherds? All right. So, uh, and there were shepherds, verse eight, living uh, out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. I like the way the movie did that. And the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. King James Version, they were sore afraid, right? Uh, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people today in the town of David a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be the sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company, the Greek language there would indicate perhaps tens of thousands. It's plethos strathia. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. We talked about peace last week. And the angels left them, had gone into heaven. The shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. And so they hurried off. Love the way they did that in the video. They hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning all that had been told them about the child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. Who were the shepherds? There's two theories, okay? Uh, the prevailing idea, because it does say they lived out uh, uh, in the fields nearby. The nearby would be nearby to Bethlehem. So the, the, the prevailing theory is that these people were, were at the lower end of the kind of socioeconomic hierarchy there, just below the slaves, or maybe above the slaves, below the slaves would be these shepherds. And they would be paid to look after flocks uh, of, of animals. And uh, they were considered unclean, spiritually unclean, because they were always in the company of these animals. They were considered to be untrustworthy because they sometimes stole from the flock. Um, in a court of law, their, their word would be of little or no regard. Uh, they were at the bottom of the social hierarchy. This is the prevailing theory about the shepherds. Uh, there is another one. Uh, because of um, a Hebrew uh, uh, a Jewish commentary back in that time called the Mishnah, which is like a commentary on the Hebrew Old Testament and talks about different kinds of ways of living uh, in order to obey the Old Testament. There was a, a, a section of the Mishnah that said if people were tending flocks, the flocks had to be out in the wilderness somewhere. They couldn't be near a town. If the flocks were near a town, then the flocks were for a specific purpose. It was a flock of 
of uh, a lamb that were being raised for the Passover feast, the Jewish Passover. And the only people who could touch those kinds of animals were the priests themselves. So there is a theory that says that these shepherds may have actually been part of the priesthood and that their job was to raise the Passover lambs, spotless, perfect lambs for the slaughter and the sacrifice at the biggest biggest feast of their their year which was Passover that's another theory it can be challenged because it says that they lived out there uh, the priests wouldn't have lived out there but it's a theory and the, I think the movie that we showed kind of blends the two and puts the two together but regardless of who they were there is a message that goes to the shepherds uh, from these angels. So to the shepherds, I bring you good news of great joy that will be to or for all the people. And this is an angel of the Lord that appears to this odd group, these shepherds. I bring you good news of great joy. Now, when we hear good news today, it can come in different forms. You know, we, we consider good news, uh, you got to raise. You know, that's good news. I, I saw a video clip of um, a Christmas party. Uh, it's a re very, very wealthy real estate company. And at the Christmas party, the, the boss announced that he was giving uh, Christmas bonuses to people. And they opened up their envelopes and the bonuses were $50,000 plus. And the people were absolutely shocked. People with tears streaming down their faces. They could not believe the news. It was good news. And I guess that you would say, it would say, they would say it brought us great, great joy until all the money spent, I suppose. But the shepherds were the recipient of this particular news from this particular angel. It is an odd piece of news, and we'll, we'll talk about that in, in a few moments. It is strange um, in their understanding, but to that angel who's speaking to those shepherds, I have got great news for you, and it's of great joy, and it's for all the people, even you shepherds. Whoever you are, are you the unclean, untrustworthy uh, people, or are you the, the priests raising the lambs? We, we can debate that all we want, but this is good news of great joy for all the people. And what's really interesting about this is how the, the, these shepherds react, because after that one angel appears to them, you see that you've got a great company of angels that appears as if to like authenticate the message you know a great company appears and has this statement glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to whom his favor rests it's like it authenticates for them what they just saw it is very hard to find this language uh, in the rest of the Bible referring to a company of angels appearing to a group of people. I think you could compare it to something you see in the book of Revelation. But I'd like to, you to answer the question, where do you see this in the entire Bible where you have this massive, massive amount of angelic beings appearing to a group of people? 
It is very, very hard to find anywhere else in Scripture except here. So this is a big, big deal for these uh, shepherds who hear this. Now again, for those of you, you know, you're skeptical in the room or skeptical watching, you say, come on, angels and visions and all this stuff. I'm just challenging you to give them the, the benefit of the doubt. Give the writers the benefit of the doubt. One thing that we, we can agree on, whether we're skeptical or not, is that these people intended for uh, their, their readers to believe that this actually happened. They're not writing this as if this is mythology, as if this is fantasy, as if this is some cleverly made up story. Their intention is that we interpret this as, as if it actually happened. That's what they're trying to do. So give them the benefit of the doubt, skeptic or not skeptic, okay? So the reaction to this message that these shepherds received. Wow, so first an angel tells them this, and then this massive, massive amount of, of angels tells them that, and then what do they do? They say, we're going to see if this thing, like we've got to go and check this out. We've got to go and see this because this is a huge, huge deal. Like, do you realize what we just saw? So they're, they're quite quick about it. And they say, we need to go and we need to see what's happened. Forget about the sheep. I mean, they apparently leave them behind, which would have gotten them in trouble. They don't care. God has spoken to us. The Lord has spoken to us. Let's go see. And there's an, there's an excitement in, their, in their, uh, their attitude. And you see that in the, in, the, in the clip. That's why I played it for you because it really captures it well. And you see they go over there and they hurry, the text says, and they find the couple, Mary and Joseph and the baby, just as they were told. And they say, we have now got to tell everybody we can. And you see it in the movie. They're running around excited and filled with joy because this is a big, big deal. This is big news. And they're running around and they are telling everybody. And let's say they're the untrustworthy shepherds who nobody believed, whose, whose testimony was, was next to nothing in a court of law. It's them who's running around and telling everybody. What an ironic thing that is. Let's say that they're part of the priesthood who are preparing the Passover lamb. We're, we're not sure what, who they really were, but let's say they were that person. Well, they, they've got the best news of all because that Passover lamb is now, is now going to be passe because the real Passover lamb has just been born. You see, so no matter how you cut the cake, this is a huge, huge event. This is a massive, massive, earth-shattering thing for these people who have waited hundreds and hundreds of years for the Messiah to come. Now, they get this news that the Messiah, the Christ, has been born. This is what makes the story, one of the things that makes the story so odd. This was not the expectation of the Jewish people back then. And it certainly is not the expectation of the Jewish people today. One of the reasons why they reject Jesus as Messiah is because of this passage. Uh, they don't accept him because of this passage. Because for them, there's no birth of God. God cannot be born. There is one God. He is, he is Yahweh. They don't even pronounce his name. And the idea that he would become flesh and that he would be born as an infant is for them a whole, like you're, you're messing around with their concept of God. How can God 
become flesh. The, their messianic expectation is for a great human uh, who's a great leader, who gathers the people back to Israel, who uh, reestablishes the temple, who brings final peace on earth, who conquers the enemies of Israel. But they do not expect the Messiah to actually be God in the flesh, much less a little infant running around in Bethlehem. This was not their expectation. So when the shepherds hear this, and they're presumably of Jewish descent, they're like, what is this? This is the craziest thing. And we've got a company, a great company of angels authenticating this message. We need to go and see what in the world is going on. Whether we're shepherds or not, who cares about the flock? This is a lot more important. Do you see the, the understanding that they had? And so they have this sense of excitement, this sense of joy, regardless of what's going on. And that is a great lesson to learn at Christmas time. You see the shepherds went and spread the word. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God. They're saying, look at what has just happened. And they're just kind of smacking themselves in the head saying, wow, look at this. And they have a joy that is really a, a biblically based joy. And there's a big difference between joy the way the Bible explains it and joy the way that the world understands it, the way the culture understands it. It's one thing to get a $50,000 bonus from your boss. It's another to encounter the creator of the universe in a little baby. Big, big difference. And so you could define joy this way. This is a good lesson for you at Christmas time. Joy is a transcendent attitude. It is not simply an emotion. Um, happiness is an emotion. It comes and it goes. For some people, joy is an emotion, and it comes and it goes. You know, I watched the, uh, the impeachment of Donald Trump. Did any of you actually watch it on television? I watched it on the internet. I mean, you could watch the whole proceedings day after day after day for free on the internet. I mean, if you're into that kind of thing. So I just wanted to watch history as the third president in history was uh, impeached by the House of Representatives this week, as we all know, whether you like him or you don't like him, that's not the point. But I watched the, the Speaker of the House, uh, Nancy Pelosi, as she struck that gavel. Did you watch that? Man, that, she was really happy. <laughs> she struck that gavel and she said, the article is carried, boom. And you could just see her face just lit up like a, like a light, you know. It was just, she was so, so happy. Very temporary emotion, okay? Now she's going to have to haggle with, with the house and how they're going to deal with this whole thing now. But that's, that stuff is all temporary, Joy is not that. Joy is a transcendent attitude. And when people have joy, and it's a joy that's based on what this book describes as joy, it's joy because and, and uh, uh, from God himself. And that you cannot defeat, that you cannot shake, that you cannot eradicate, when people have that kind of joy, it's in spite of their situation in life. It's in spite of their health or lack of health. It's in spite of their situation, their, their, their family. It's in spite of whatever circumstance, doesn't matter. They still are able to carry with them 
that joy. And people may look at them and say, how can you be so happy even when you just lost your job? How can you be so happy even when you were just diagnosed with this thing? How can you be so happy even when your loved one has just been hit with this circumstance? What, that is not normal. That's right. When it comes from God and is because of God, it transcends whatever's going on. And this is what these shepherds experienced, and this is what is available to you and I today. But again, it's not, it's not because of what's going on around you, it's because of what's going on inside. And when God is alive and well inside you, you have that sense of joy, and you, it transcends whatever is going on. So it is not temporary, and it is an attitude. There are times when you have to choose it. There are times in life where you say, well, am I going to react to this, this circumstance that has been thrown my way and just sulk about it and be negative about it? Or am I going to focus on God? And when you make that decision to focus on God, you'll find that joy again. You make the decision to look at the waves around you and look at the wind around you and look at the storm around you. Don't be surprised if you see that joy start to diminish. So you have to make that choice. But when God is alive in you, my friends, you can have it and you can have it consistently because it transcends everything that's going on. Good lesson about joy at Christmas. Moving on to the Magi. Because from joy comes worship, and from worship comes joy. The two of them are kind of intertwined together. And these folks are even more mysterious, these magi. And there's all kinds of ways of pronouncing their, their strange name. The, the transliteration from the Greek is M-A-G-O-I. Uh, Magoi. Uh, any of you ever seen the movie Gremlins? What were they called? The Magwai or something? Mogwai, yeah, so it almost sounds like that, the Mogwai, that old 80s movie, uh, for, uh, the, the Gremlins, okay? So we'll pronounce it Magi. Yes, we do get the word magic from that old Greek word, but again, it's a bit of a different meaning back then. Who were these people? We're not really sure. Uh, they only appear in the book of Matthew and in Matthew chapter 2. And uh, we're told that they are from the east. Uh, I don't have time to read the whole chapter, but you can read it on your own. We're told that they're from the east. What does the author Matthew mean when he, say, when he says uh, from the east? After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, that's King Herod the Great, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Is that, does he mean as far east as Persia and, and Babylon, where, where Daniel was held captive uh, in the book of Daniel? Perhaps. Is he closer to Bethlehem or, or Jerusalem? Perhaps. We don't really know. And there's various ideas about this. The most prevailing is that they're from way out east, the same area where uh, Daniel would have been held captive uh, by the Babylonians in the book of Daniel. And you'll see why in a moment. These are people who were influenced by astronomy and astrology. So they had a mix of all kinds of things, a bit of an all-dressed pizza. There is a difference between astrology and astronomy. You say, astrology, isn't that the occult? You're telling me these people were into the occult? Well, it had a mishmash of stuff to it. So in astronomy, we actually observe the, 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 the stars and we observe the cosmos and we're able to develop certain ideas and certain theories about the, the way that these, these bodies move and what they're 
composed of and so on. Astrology is very different, right? Astrology says that those things can predict your future and all of that, and that's not the place that you want to go. You want, you want to be more into astronomy than you do into astrology. But these guys, they were into both. And we do have some evidence that people who came from that part of the world would have been into both of those things. And they looked up at the heavens. For them, they were both symbolic and physical. So you got a kind of an all-dress pizza happening there. And these guys, remarkable their reaction to what they see. They, they make their way uh, uh, to Herod and they say, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Now, they're, they're making this known to Herod the Great. I don't know if any of you have done a little bit of reading about Herod the Great, but Herod the Great was an interesting leader. Okay, so if you, if you look at the nastiest rulers of today and the most egocentric and the most narcissistic and the most uh, 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 autocratic and uh, uh, you look at whatever political system and, you, you know, you look at despots and you look at these kinds of rulers and you compare them to Herod the Great. I mean, Herod the Great was a paranoid, self-centered, egocentric, uh, terrified ruler. He would wipe out people who he thought was in his way. He had uh, several members of his family murdered, including his wife, including two of his sons. He orchestrated the, the slaughter of the babies in Bethlehem in search of Jesus, which you'll read in this very same chapter. And this coincides perfectly with who he was as per the history books. And you have these wise men. Uh, well, we call them wise men, these magi. And they want to know where is the one who is born king of the Jews? We have seen his star in the east. Wow. What did they see? How did they know this? We have no clue. What, what, what were they going by? What, we, we have no clue. There are theories about, about uh, stars uh, coming together in a triad. There are theories that this thing that they saw was entirely supernatural. I mean, there's so many different ideas about this star. But they saw something, and for them it was something that indicated a king was born, and he was, he was worthy to actually be worshipped. And they are addressing this. this. This gets known to King Herod, the paranoid, self-centered, narcissistic ruler. Guess what he's going to do? He's going to find a way to figure out who, who is he talking about because this, this new king needs to get dealt with. Uh, needs to be out of the way. And so he finds out and he, he calls the teachers of the law together and he says, where is the Christ supposed to be born? And again, this, this is a totally different thought for these people back then. They did not have a concept that, that the Christ was supposed to be God, nor that he was supposed to be born. And yet Matthew uh, interprets this rightly for us. We, we don't really know how 
even the way Matthew quotes this passage, how he's able to even understand this. And these teachers of the law, they seem to know this prophecy. But this was an uncommon understanding about the Christ, that he was supposed to come as a baby, but especially that he was supposed to be God. Totally, totally different. But they seem to know, and they say, in Bethlehem, in Judea, for this is what the prophet has written. And they quote from uh, the book of Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, which you saw uh, read in the movie that we just played. And Herod, he calls him Magi, and he says, I want to know the time when you saw the star. And he puts two and two together, and he says, all right, this baby has been born in Bethlehem. I want to know when you saw that star, because whenever you saw that star is probably whenever that baby was born, if I'm going by what you say. We have no idea what the, what the Magi were going by. There is an obscure prophecy in the book of Numbers uh, given by Belaim, the, the guy with the, the false prophet with the talking donkey. Remember that story? from Matthew chapter, uh, Numbers chapter 24, and there's an obscure passage about, uh, behold, I see him, but not now, and a star shall rise, and some people think that that's from Numbers chapter 24 and verse 17, but that passage is never interpreted for us in the New Testament. We really don't have any idea what it means, but we don't know how these, these magi were able to figure this out. We don't know what they were going by, but they seem to have an understanding that a ruler would come and that this ruler needed to be worshipped as a deity. Remarkable. How did they figure this out? Could be that they came from the land of, you know, Babylon, Persia, where Daniel had such an influence centuries before, and maybe they came to understand the Hebrew scriptures by, by what Daniel left behind and his influence and his ministry there. We don't know. It's simply conjecture for us to say that, but that's a theory. And so Herod wants to find out the exact time, and he says, look, Go and find out when that star appeared so that I may worship him too. Where it is and when. And of course, that's not Herod the Great's intention. His intention is to find out where this child is so he can get rid of him. And so they, they hear the king. The star that they saw went ahead and it stopped. Stars don't stop, but it says it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And coming to the house... Again, the, the Magi were not there the night that Jesus was born. This could be up to two years later. So Jesus would have been about a two-year-old perhaps at this time. They're in a house. The, there's no manger mentioned. This is not the night that Jesus was born. This is after. And they come to the house and they see his mother Mary. Joseph is not mentioned, curiously enough there. And they bow down and they worshiped him. It's interesting that they didn't worship Mary, by the way. And they bow down and they worship him. These magi, I mean, they're not Hebrew. They, they, where did they get this understanding? We have no clue. No wonder we call them wise men. I mean, they figured this out and they have a very particular intention. And that is to worship a child. He's a little child. He's an infant. 
I mean, we have images of Jesus as a baby, you know, never crying and with a little halo over his head and light shining all the time. I would dispute that. I think he was a regular two-year-old, just like any two-year-old. Maybe he was, you know, uh, they, call, they call it the terrible twos. You know, maybe Jesus had a strong will as a little child. I mean, I don't know. The Bible doesn't say, but it doesn't say that he was any different than anybody else. I mean, he, he was raised as a human. He was human and he was fully God at the same time. And here you have these magi who have traveled all this way very, very intentionally with these very peculiar gifts, uh, uh, myrrh and, and uh, incense and so on and gold, very peculiar, very symbolic, representing the specifically the deity of this person that they came to worship. And they are bowing down and worshiping at the feet of a little infant. It is the strangest thing. I mean, how did they how did they understand this? How did they pick this off? We don't know, but it is remarkable that they did and their intention above all things was to worship this one who is who has been born. We have come to worship him. They bowed down and they worshiped him. That was their intention first and foremost. It didn't matter how long they had to travel. They knew that that star or whatever they saw in the sky was an indication something big just happened. Again, how they figured it out, we have no idea. They are then warned in a dream to not go back to Herod the Great, and then they return to their own country by another route. We don't even know what their country is. And when they had gone, an angel appears to Joseph and tells Joseph and Mary, you need to go on the run. And you need to get out of here and you need to go to Egypt because Herod is going to hunt down the child. In typical Herod the Great fashion, he is going to wipe out whoever threatens his rule. And so they run off and they head to Egypt. Herod realized that he'd been outfoxed by the Magi who were smarter than he was. He's furious. He's angry. He, and he orders that all the, the children two years and under in accordance with the time they learned from the Magi that they all be wiped out. What a terrible scene. I mean, what a... It's a horrific, horrific thing. And, uh, but he executes the order and this is what happens. And Mary and Joseph and Jesus effectively are refugees on the run and they end up in Egypt until it's safe to go back home. These people, these, this, this group of people, this magi, they teach us something important about worship. Worship is an action. And it's interesting, you don't see them singing. They bow down and they worship this little, this little infant. They don't sing choruses or hymns or anything. They just, they fall down and bow down before him. There's a physical action. It took a physical action for them to travel who knows how many miles. It was intentional for them to prepare those very specific gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh and so on. It, very specific. And this is what worship is. Okay, it's good to sing, and that's that's good. That's that's a part of it. Uh, it's good to 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 give and to, to give in the art. That's a part of it. Okay, that's all a part of it. But worship, ultimately, this is an action that indicates the priority of a person. You want to see if a person is a worshiper of God. 
Watch their life. It should be obvious. It should be obvious God, their God, their Jesus is obviously a priority in their life. People should look at us and say, well, we don't know if we agree with them or disagree with them. We don't know if they're crazy. But one thing for sure, they prioritize worship of Jesus in their life. It's quite obvious. It's the, you know, the, the wise men, the magi, they stuck out like a sore thumb. I mean, and who knows? I, I dispute that there were three of them. That's an old tradition. That doesn't, it's not mentioned in the Bible. If they were these people from Babylon, Persia, those people, there's some evidence that they traveled in large caravans. Could have been a large caravan of people, 20, 30 people. We don't know. In any case, worship is the action that sh- indicates the priority of a person. Uh, where are you spending your time? Where, what are you investing your, your time and your talent and your treasure and your abilities and the things you talk about and the things you think about? That is your object of worship. And we learn this from the, uh, from the Magi. Okay, so, and worship feeds joy, and joy feeds worship. They're like a, they, they, they bind themselves together. You see that in the Christmas narrative. Now, just, just to finish off, because beyond the things that we learn from the shepherds and the magi uh, and the angels, uh, beyond the things that we learn from them, there is something quite authentic about the cast of Christmas that I really would invite you to consider. Because I'm aware that people are all over the place in this room, people who will watch online or listen, all over the place in their understanding of of, uh, the whole Christmas story and what's believable and what's not believable. How far do I want to go with this? How much do I want to believe? How much do I really want to worship Jesus? And, you know, all these questions come into your mind. There is an authentic nature to the cast of Christmas. And uh, let, me, let me help you understand this uh, by showing you another cute little picture here, okay? Any of you watching, have any of you seen the new Star Wars movie yet? Raise your hand if you've seen it. You're not sinning if you raise your hand, okay? Nobody's seen it yet? One person? The new one. The new movie is playing right here. Anybody? No? Okay. Well, uh, I'm sure some of you will. I certainly will. Okay. This series has been around since I was six or seven years old. So I want to see what happens. Uh, But have any of you um, uh, uh, subscribed to Disney Plus since Disney Plus came out? Okay. So have any of you been watching another Star Wars thing called The Mandalorian? Don't say who. Have any of you been watching The Mandalorian? Raise your hand. You're not sinning. My goodness, okay, I don't know if this illustration is going to work. If you could put the picture on the screen, okay. So, in The Mandalorian, you have a a character that has taken uh, the popular culture by storm. Uh, This character is now called by the internet, in particular, Baby Yoda. Okay, so if you've been watching The Mandalorian, this is an old, old story that's been told over and over and over again. It's like an old Western movie from the 1950s. You've got this kind of rogue, loner, uh, uh, Mandalorian guy. He never takes off his mask, you know. And, and lo and behold, through a series of circumstances, he ends up protecting this little child uh, creature and 
and uh, we don't know what anything about where's this where's this little thing come from. We don't know, but of course, if you've seen the Star Wars series, you say hello. That looks suspiciously like one of the most famous characters in moviedom, and that's Yoda. And people have fallen in love with this character. They can't wait for the merchandise to be distributed. They want it under their Christmas trees. But I'm, I, I've read that uh, while you can buy the stuff now, it won't be shipped until after Christmas or something. I don't know, maybe it's because of hype because of the movie that's playing. But people have gone crazy over this character. Because as you watch this character, you see certain things about the character. In particular, if you know the Star Wars series, this little child has the Force. And this little child is able to do things that look suspiciously like the Bible. So the most recent episode, I won't tell you exactly what happens, but this little child does something, if you flip to the next picture, does something suspiciously airlifted out of the pages of the New Testament. So what do you have? You have a little child on the run. Everybody is interested in this little thing. Everybody wants to wipe this little thing off the face of the earth. There's a whole bunch of commotion, a whole bunch of attention about this little thing. And this little thing can do things that are supernatural. This little thing can, I won't say because I don't want to give it away, but does things that, wow, they're almost intentionally copying what you read in the pages of the Gospels. Now, the, I, the, the Gospels don't teach the force, don't get me wrong, but all I'm saying is this is a story that's been told over and over and over and over again. Messiah character born on the run, being protected, uh, supernatural ability and so on, miracle worker. You see this in culture over and over and over again in movies, television, books, magazines, cartoons, everywhere for a long, long time. Do you know that, that, that this stuff here, this is... This is airlifted from the original. The reason why we relate to it and why we gravitate to it is because the gospel story, this idea of God being born in the flesh and appearing to these people that you see in the pages of Matthew and the pages of Luke, it is so unlikely, it is so awkward, it is so unpredictable, it's so troubling that it's Unbelievable. So, I mean, if you were God and you were going to make your grand entrance into the world and you were in those conditions, would you not come into Herod's palace with a bolt of lightning and get him out of the way and appear on the scene like, like, you know, some superhuman thing? Would you not do it that way? If you were going to invent a story, if you were going to deliberately concoct a story, let's assume that Matthew and Luke just invented this. I mean, they deliberately set it into a historical thing. They're naming real people and real places and real customs and so on. But let's say they did it intentionally to voice the greatest lie ever told upon the human race. Let's just say they did that. Would they do it this way? I mean, this is, this is odd in every way that you can think of. So unlikely. Mary gets pregnant. She's a teenager and she's pregnant out 
of marriage. I mean, they're legally bound to one another, but they haven't consummated their marriage. Do you know how awkward that would be back in that culture? You're going to make that up, that story? That is very, very strange. You're, you're going, to, going to be born as a little baby in that place and appear, the angels appear to those people? Shepherds? Why in the world, if you were going to cook up that story, why would you appear that way? You're going to call this baby God and portray this baby as being God in the flesh? Messes around with their theological concept. Okay, you could say, look, these people who interpreted prophecy went to Herod and they seemed to know that Christ would be born. Well, they seem to know that, but the idea that he would be God, this, is, this would have shaken them and said, well, we don't believe in two gods. Well, we see the Trinity as something that's, that's fully developed for us in the pages of the New Testament, but this would have been a shock to them in terms of their theology, in terms of this is so, so unpredictable. And this, this couple has to go and run as, as refugees over to Egypt. And you've got these, these magi who aren't even Hebrew who are able to ascertain and understand who this little child is. This story is, is, is filled with all kinds of things that make us question, that make us wonder. If you're a first century Jew, they're, they're troubling, awkward, unpredictable. There's no way that anyone would have invented this kind of thing in that time to that audience. No way. It is so outlandish. And again, if you talk to Jewish people today and you say to them, how is it that you don't believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah? Look at your book. Look at the Bible. It's so, so, so obvious. And they will say, no. They say this idea of a virgin birth, this is not found in the pages of Scripture. You, you people are interpreting it wrong. The idea that the Messiah would be God is wrong. The idea that the Messiah would even be born as a baby to them, they say, well, Micah is being interpreted this way. That's not the way we interpret Micah. Uh, and on and on. They would say, Where's the peace on earth that Jesus brought? It's nowhere. You people believe in the second coming. That's, you're just inventing that to try and account for the fact that there was no peace when Jesus came the first time. He didn't fulfill the law. He didn't do this. He didn't do that. And they have a whole system to deny that Jesus was the Christ, to deny it completely. So they're not so different than the first century culture. Not so different at all. And that's why the story is so believable. Because it is so off the wall. But you have to put yourself back then in their time, in their place to grasp it. And when you do, that will drive you to worship. When you do, that will drive you to joy. Because it is the greatest story ever told. It's better than Mandalorian. It's better than Star Wars. Those are cheap copies of the original cheap copies. Nothing compares to the greatest story that's ever been told. And it can still change your life today. It can still uh, uh, bring you joy. It can still drive you to worship. It can still give you peace. It can do all the things that it's always done. But we have to ultimately make that decision uh, ourselves. And what are we going to do this Christmas? Is it just going to come and go? Or are we going to say, hold on, hold on, hold on. 
Uh, let's, let's reread Matthew 1 and Matthew 2. Let's reread Luke 1 and Luke 2. And let's stop and let's ponder and let's appreciate, wow, we have been impacted by Jesus even 2,000 years later. Would you stand with me, please? And if I could have the house lights on and uh, there's no need for the musicians to come. I just want to have a uh, uh, prayer with you today before we finish. And um, boy, you know, I, I really, uh, my, my burden for you is that somehow you would find a few moments uh, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, somehow you would find a few moments to say, you know, it's great to have the family gatherings. It's great to have the gifts. It's great to have time off work and school. All those things are wonderful. We love all those things and all those traditions, and that's all great. But ultimately, we want to take time. And I would challenge you, as even as individuals, to take time and say, Jesus, ultimately, it's about you. And ultimately, I've got to have joy in my life and worship in my life and peace in my life, ultimately because of you and from you, come what may in 2020, I take hold of the hand of Jesus. So Father, we just do that today, and uh, Lord, we thank you. We have this precious record of the, of the, the, the most significant events in the history of this world. And I pray, Lord, for each one of us, uh, for, the, for the person who's in this room and they say, I don't even know what I believe. To the person who says, oh, I know it and, and, and I'm, I'm right there and, and uh, uh, I have this sense of an authentic relationship with God. Lord, wherever we are in that spectrum, I pray above all things, Lord, we would take the time just to bind ourselves to Jesus once again. Lord, you are the one who's able ultimately to bring us peace. You are the one who's able ultimately to bring us joy. And Lord, for that we will worship. I pray for each household, for your blessing of peace upon them, God. For your, your provision, your power to be made manifest in each home, God. I pray for all the family gatherings that are going to happen and all the relationships that can be strengthened and all the opportunity that we may have to talk about the Savior. And, and God, I just pray that, uh, that you would be present in what we are doing and you would enable us uh, uh, to, to worship you over this season. We pray in the name of Jesus and everyone said, amen. amen.